Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams and Tea Podcast, where we spin the jams and spill the tea, and list season is here. Riley and I, we listen to a hell of a lot of music. So even if we have a 10 or 20 album long list at the end of the year of our favorite albums, there is going to be a handful of records that do not make it onto that list for whatever reason, as a podcast collective, we're going to uh, intersect at all of the albums that we like. So this gives us an opportunity to A, shout out records that maybe only one of us are particularly fond of, or just albums that really flew under the radar. That's what we're really focusing yeah. on here today, is albums that we feel did not get enough attention. We've done these in 2021 and 2022, where we shout out what we think are the most underrated, under-listened to albums, so that before you make your end of the year list, you have some of the more obscure picks under your belt, so that you can say that you've listened to them as well, because these are quality records that we are yeah. going to sell to you here today. And the idea as well, to a certain extent, is, is we hope that you'll find favorites here that you otherwise didn't really know about, or maybe you heard of it, but never got around to listening to it. It's not a perfect thing. There will be some of these albums that are more popular than others, but generally the idea is that these are records we want. We wish had more attention throughout the year, regardless of how much we love them. We just wish that more ears were on them because they deserve the attention. So Jake, why don't you lead us off with your first pick today for Overlooked albums of 2023 first picks a relatively easy sell for anybody who pays attention to our podcast my first pick here today is freak accident by al men and see thing here is that this is actually the front person of a band that we absolutely adore that of course being great grandpa four of arrows is an album we've done uh a an entire episode on in the past because that's basically the album that we all cite as being the the focal point for the creation of this podcast it's a contextually very important album it's an album that both riley and i absolutely adore uh very much in our own personal canon of indie rock and we are eagerly awaiting and anticipating a new great grandpa album so thankfully to tide us over until then, we have this short little record made by Front Person shouting out a uh, fantastic non-binary artist today and with a less than 30 minute long singer-songwriter record. And if you are into Great Grandpa at all, one-to-one -one overlap in terms of the appeal here. If you are a fan of the songwriting that's on display on that record, then you are going to be a fan of the songwriting on display here. It is personal. It is emotional. It is often difficult and quite cutting. Um, there are fantastic songs on here that I think could bat it out with some of the better tracks on Four of Arrows. Uh, the title track, in my opinion, being the Apex. And it's something that's really easy to just sort of throw on and listen to if you're a fan of this sort of indie or alt country kind of sound it's very spare but it shows a great fundamental understanding of song construction some great songwriting it'll hit you right in the gut uh and it won't take very long in order to get that emotional reaction out of you a a fantastic under the radar release that's somehow even more under like the radar than this band that's already kind of left of the dial so it's something that i really wanted to shout out just because uh, al's artistry does not deserve to go unmentioned it's fantastic 
Absolutely. My first pick today is an album that we've talked about on a quick reviews episode of the show, an album from a major artist. And I feel like I have to mention here that overlooked is a contextual term because most artists who make music are overlooked. Most artists who make music don't get many listeners. It's just a fact of the saturation level of music nowadays, the amount of people out there making music. But sometimes a great artist, a popular artist, will make a record that is overlooked by their standards because it doesn't fit neatly within the niche or the aesthetic or the style that people are used to from that artist. And so as a result of that, it goes completely under the radar. And that was the case for many reasons for Kesha's new album, Gag Order, which I think is absolutely one of the most essential albums of 2023, a record that is not easy listening and issues so much of what Kesha is good at for blanket, naked, honest reflection on the difficult experiences that she has gone through over the past few years, the way that she's been viewed in the media, the way that she has had her trauma aired out in public and had to take ownership of it in a very particular way as an artist as well to be able to move on. And so this record in a lot of respects is basically Kesha confronting all of that head on and not dressing any of it up at all in a regular style. You know, and Kesha's made a number of great records. I mean, 2017's Rainbow, I think, is an astonishing confrontation mm -hmm. of all of the shit that she went through while channeling it through the various styles of country music and stomping alt-pop and all these things that she's really good at. But the thing about Gag Order is that it's almost a-musical on a regular basis. It's deliberately fragmented. It's extremely minimal. Parts of it are built solely around vocal loops, or there's a Casio preset sound on the song, the drama that forms the foundation of it that's almost hilariously mundane, but fits so well with this confessional approach. And again, it's not confessional like, oh, I'm a big artist who makes these overly produced songs, but I'm I'm pairing it back with an acoustic guitar and I'm doing it like that. It's very unusual. It's very transgressive, even for an artist in this space. There are many songs on here that are barely musical, but just exist for Kesha to essentially air her frustrations and vent her bitterness about her exploitation on songs like Fine Line. Uh, there are songs that rest wholly on the power of what she can do with her voice, which, like Peace and Quiet, which forms a kind of swaggering rhythm purely from the cadence of how she sings the hook. And there are, you know, bizarre, strange uh, digressions and interludes. And it is a scrapbook therapy session that doesn't bear any of the cloying, you know, cliche sentiments that that kind of description might evoke. It's a refreshing and, and uncompromising and unusual album that obviously for Kesha's level of success has underperformed because it's not in any way tailored towards or marketed towards the audience that typically consume her. And for that, it's only all the stronger. So my first album today is Kesha's Gag Order. Uh, my second album today is a record that feels primed to have a bigger audience, but for some reason does not. It is from an artist called Avenade, and that is their album, Our Raging God Unknown to Us. If you are a fan of Deftones, this should be considered 100% essential listening for you. 
Um, but not just because it's like something that you're already going to be a fan of, but because it's distinctly quite different. This is a noisier, filthier, angrier, and rowdier incarnation of Deftones that honestly bears a little bit more similarity to maybe their earlier stuff if you combined it with like the Alice in Chains self-titled. Like there is a very distinct sort of noise rock kind of bent that this has that adds a certain grit to everything. And when you get right down to it, this is an insanely audacious record. Like everything on here is so fully formed and so unique sounding that I'm just kind of in awe of it. There are elements of like when it gets really noisy, it can kind of delve into a shoegazier, sort of spacier, cloudier vibe. But there's also elements of grunge and sludge metal on here that keeps the impact going throughout the entirety of it. Hell, uh, the penultimate track on here, Separate, I'm heartbroken that did not make the final cut for my favorite songs of the year list, but it is something that you absolutely need to hear. And the album that surrounds it, it's not exactly a chore to get there in the first place. It is a little bit on the longer side, but trust me, it is consistent enough to warrant the length. It is an absolutely staggering achievement of all of these different influences coming together and creates this hazy, incredibly raucous and incredibly fun, but also still kind of dark and bleak record. It, it's primed for like, it, just generally speaking, it's the type of music that this podcast gravitate towards and celebrates a lot of the time. So if this isn't on your radar, then it absolutely should be. Hell yeah. My second pick today is I've got two EPs on this list and I'm making, I'm letting myself have that because uh well first in the case of both they're artists that primarily work in the ep format because that's kind of in the case of one which i'll get to that's they're a fairly new artist so that's understandable but in the case of the artists i want to talk about now they work in the ep format because that's the typical format for this kind of music which is uh a very unconventional and very aggressive take on deconstructed club and techno and uk based music the artist in question is called Blow One, and the EP is called Dismantled into Juice. Blow One is a prolific artist who's been around for over a decade now, releasing these bite-sized nuggets of techno music that offers a distinct and innovative and original perspective on the music of artists like say it with me kids or ticker in recent eras as well if you enjoy the 2010s or ticker stuff records like lsec and the NTS sessions for instance blue one is for you this new ep is essentially a series of textural exercises more than songs and the name of the game here is bass I guarantee you, you have never heard bass tones that sound like this. Synthetic, thick, ugly pools of violence. Now, obviously, there's some influence, influence from Sophie here. I think herself was influenced by Blowan to a certain extent to transfuse through their specific... I, I hate to lean on the all-ticker thing because it feels obvious, but there are specific tracks on the NTS sessions I thought of while listening to this. But this bass is like... It's the kind of bass that sounds like someone undoing a zipper and just sort of amplifying that and it's stretching it and then curdling it, pulling it around these disembodied echoes of vocal samples and, and synthesizers. It's 
utterly confounding music but it's complete musical bliss if you have the kind of sensibilities that i have because it's just tactile in every sense of it um it doesn't if you're looking for you know industrial techno that's more conventionally oriented around beats and you know house music influence you might not enjoy this this is much more formless but again it comes in the ep format because that is the typical format for music of this type and so as a result of that as well it's just 18 minutes which is the perfect length for consuming this kind of stuff it's still kind of confounds me i think if you want to if you want a taste of it listen to the first track toast which is the best on the record i think but even still it is definitely one for the one for people who just want to be blown back and confounded by how these sounds can be made. Uh, I think that's ultimately what it is. It's pure experiential music. And I have one other record coming up as well that's kind of fits in with that too. Um, so if that sounds appealing to you, I would say give this a shot. I found this through a recommendation. And I, I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, shit, why was I not familiar with this artist? I need to dive back into their other EPs and singles because this is just awesome. So yeah, my second rec today is Blue One's EP Dismantled into Juice. And actually thinking about it, that is a perfect title for how this music sounds. Well, speaking of completely enormous, overwhelming experiences, my next pick on the list here is probably the biggest album that I'm talking about in my list from probably the most popular artist um not to say that they're at the forefront of the conversation or anything but it is the christine and the queens album from this year paranoia angels true love um i mean i absolutely ranted and raved about this when i first heard it and absolutely nothing has changed whatsoever it's probably not even going to be the last time you'll hear us talk about it considering one of its songs is so fantastic that i would highly highly anticipate seeing it make onto our best songs of the year list but who knows at this point regardless you need to hear the album that contains this song because yes, it is a 90 minute long triple album that is very inaccessible, but I promise you this thing is so balanced out as an experience and flows so well. I did not have even a little bit of an issue getting through this initially. And when I come back for like revisits, I've just listened to singular discs from this and gotten like a very enriching, rewarding experience because all of them are their own discs distinct kind of flavor. But what we have here is just some hugely all-encompassing alt-pop. It's very kind of dark. It's occasionally kind of down-tempo and sedentary, but the lyrical and like the voice performance on here are kind of the star of the show. There are so many amazing, very melodramatic, occasionally like campy vocal performances that are backed by instrumentation that's very sparse but at the same time also just very full the actual construction of them is very simple even skeletal at times but it's the texture of these instrumentals that remains to be the most fascinating part of the experiences you have multiple madonna features on here you have mike dean doing the production i mean this is just an album that only comes from a an established artist and like looking to make a phenomenally huge creative statement and it's worth that for the novelty alone but once you get past the novelty itself i just think all of the songs here are extraordinary i mean yes track 10 is an exceptional piece of music that combines so many different things together there's hip-hop trip-hop dark wave 
progressive rock, all kinds of shit thrown into this one distinct song. But that's far from the only highlight here. There's songs like He's Been Shining Forever, Your Son, which is a phenomenal song. The three-track run of We Have to Be Friends, Lick the Light Out, and To Be Honest is one of the best runs of pop music of this entire year. It's a staggering achievement. I am so sad that this album seems to have gone under the radar for a lot of people. Um, I just feel like if more people gave it a chance that it would have like way more people saying that it's as brilliant as it is my third pick today is actually an album that we've already formally reviewed this year so i won't spend too much time on it and it's an album from a pretty established act who have a good cult following as well but i feel like are so associated with their first album which was an incredibly important and big celebratory indie pop album uh, from the 2000s that their subsequent music I think has been kind of overlooked I spent a whole month listening to this band's discography and just falling deeper and deeper in love with them as I went the band is the go team and the album of course is their new record get up sequences part two an absolutely joyful escape from the shitty toils of the world any that description applies to any go team album but this new one in particular was an absolute triumph we were both quite enthusiastic about it as well there are certain things with the go team that you can always count on expressive booming brass and sample heavy instrumentations colorful unusual flecks of things like vibraphone and unconventional percussion a stellar array of vocal performances from a diverse array of guests. The feeling of a collective animated by this joie de vivre that makes it utterly irresistible and so charming. And that's everything that encompasses any given Go Team record. But Get Up Sequences Part 2, I think, is absolutely in the upper echelon of their discography. Don't even worry if you haven't heard Part 1. Part two is a fully cohesive and satisfying experience in and of itself. Has some of the best Go Team songs of recent records on it, like Dive Bomb and Getting to Know All the Ways We're Wrong for Each Other. Lovely record, has never stopped being a sense of joy to me throughout this year. One of my favorite things to do, honestly, is just put their whole discography on shuffle and just experience the sugar rush the whole time. So if you need something like that, if you need to have an experience like that that just makes you feel this intense high for 40 minutes you cannot go wrong with new go team album it's just fantastic my next pick on the list is an album that i called it several several months ago i was talking about how this is an album that is absolutely primed to be on a list like this and it remains to be the album that i think if we're talking purely proportionally speaking this is the record that has gotten the least amount of attention has a whopping two ratings on rate your music and i am one of them that is from the band team tremolo and their debut album conjured light uh, full disclosure here, this was a band that actually sent me this album to review it, to shout it out on our show, which I do very rarely and only when I'm like actually like very, you know, called by the music in question. Uh, and this is something that I absolutely was thrilled to shout out because it's phenomenal. Uh, it is a shoegaze album, yes, but it's also a lot more than that. I would say that this overridingly blends shoegaze and post-hardcore in a really unique way that manages to appeal to things like, again, my inner Deftones fan, 
for example, but also like broader, larger swaths of indie rock. I feel like that is not a completely dissimilar area to where this album operates within. Uh, Shudder is a perfect song, in my opinion, one of the best songs of the year and uh, will make my final list of best songs of the year for certain. Uh, the vocal presence on here is absolutely fantastic, brings some very blunt emotional lyricism to the table, combined with this very bright, warm, overpowering, but still frenetic and propulsive production. Uh, lead singer has a voice that I find very analogous to that of Chelsea Wolfe, but Chelsea Wolfe within a context in which you would never hear her voice being used, uh, not quite a broody in the same way, but like the same sort of gloom me ethereal vibe but with more of a a pop slant this is a really immediate sounding record uh and it's not a difficult sell at least for me at all if you like shoegaze if you like post-hardcore if you like any of the things i've mentioned please give these guys uh some of your time they more than deserve it and i want to see more from them because frankly if they manage to build off of this debut in any significant way they are one of the most exciting groups in modern shoegaze and literally nobody is talking about them and that is just too much of a damn shame my next pick comes with a couple of caveats. First of all, I haven't seen many people talking about this throughout the year, but I can understand if people dispute me saying it's overlooked, given that it did get a best new music from Pitchfork. And there has been some discussion online about this album that has inspired some pretty divisive reactions. And that aspect of it, its divisiveness, is kind of the thing I'm hinging on with my recommendation here and inclusion in this overlooked albums of the year list. Because my other caveat is that I'm going to describe what this album is, and if it's if it sounds unbearable to you, you'll probably find it unbearable. It's not a record for everyone. It's such a fragmented, disassociative, at times unsatisfying, at times bizarrely terrifying experience that I initially kind of hated it the first time I heard it and even finished the album I just kind of dipped my toes and I thought what the fuck is this but I come back to it later in the year because I felt like I wasn't really giving it a full chance and it's completely won me over and the album is called I've Seen Away by a band called Mandy Indiana uh, this is how to describe this it's like deconstructed dance music hellscapes uh bizarre fragmented unfinished pieces of music weird kind of terrifying french woman forebodingly speaking over top of these beats that feel like they are just sort of limping lifelessly towards their own death these extended passages of terrifying ambience. There's a song on here called Iron Maiden that's just like three minutes of distant metallic screeching. There is uh, songs on here like Peach Fuzz and Drag Crash, which are just these fantastically thumping uh, house music bedrocks that feel like they're being corrupted and corroded by the extraneous noise around them. It's a kind of experience that a lot of people are going to find understandably baffling and I get that, but listen to this thing in the dark. Listen to this thing. If you're either uh, on some kind of uh, let's say 
upping drug or caffeinated or in a particularly kind of wiry headspace, put this thing on and have what I can only describe as a terrifying trip. It's only 37 minutes long, which is for the best. This is the kind of record where you could see these guys pulling all the pretension out and making it like 90 minutes long. I'm glad they didn't because the brevity of this thing kind of only makes it more mysterious to me. I have no idea what this band are or what their ambitions are for future projects, but the way that it incorporates these bizarre deconstructed versions of things like um, 2000s electro clash and industrial techno, I just find it weirdly entrancing. So I wanted to give it a shout out in this video because yes, while it's received a good amount of critical praise, it's made it onto a lot of critics lists. I think that that in some ways has engendered or set up a weird expectation for it that has left a lot of people cold with it. So I think it's still kind of overlooked because I think it's a really interesting and provocative work, but it won't be for everyone. So that comes with a little bit of a caveat, but give it a shot. And again, I would strongly suggest if you are going to give it a shot, Put yourself in the right headspace for something like this. It needs to, You need to be somewhere dark. You need to be kind of on edge and you need to kind of be ready to be thrown around a little bit like a rag doll. And I think under those settings, you may well enjoy this album. Mandy, Indiana, I've seen a way. Well, uh, my next album sounds like the complete polar opposite of that experience. And that this hey. is a new age record uh, that I found at the very start of the year. One of the first albums I actually properly fell in love with this year is by an artist called Cicada. And the album is Seeking the Sources of Streams. To be blunt, I think this is probably the best ambient release of the year. It is full of these lush but still quite minimal compositions that a lot of people have compared the vibe that this gives off to the sort of sedate comfort that you would get from watching a, a Studio Ghibli film, like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, for example. And they're not totally off base in the effect that it sort of creates in you, but I would say that this has a, a pretty... You know, there's there's a big valley of distance in between this and the compositional style of Joe Hisaishi, which is a little bit more direct and a lot more, I guess, just full of passion and wonder. Whereas this is more, again, it's a little bit more subtle, I guess. Uh, in fact, I would say that the closest sort of sound to this is that it's kind of like the soundtrack elements of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild in the very sort of light piano flourishes. Occasionally there will be a little bit of like string embellishments here and there. But what's great about this album to me is that it's 40 minutes long and about 30 minutes of it is comprised of three titanic tracks that are like eight minutes, 10 minutes, and almost 10 minutes. And these are exquisite pieces to the point where it doesn't matter how you feel about the rest of the album or the more interstitial moments in between it, even though I think they are excellent, but these tower as some of the most beautiful pieces of music that I've heard in some time. Uh, if you are a fan of Ryuichi Sakamoto's earlier stuff, I would also heavily recommend something like this. Um, it's definitely not for somebody who wants something immediate, even by terms like specific to ambient music, but I don't really feel like that matters all that much. What matters is the fact that this is calming and soothing 
gorgeous and obviously very deliberately arranged and structured into experience that I think is very, very well-rounded for what limited tools this album ends up working with. But it manages to take all of these tiny little tools and create something that feels wholly enrapturing. So if you need a good way to sort of disappear for 40 minutes, I couldn't recommend this enough. For my next pick, I'm going to step away from some of the more alienating or niche aspects of some of my recommendations so far and just put out there something that I think is an absolutely perfect album to chill out to. A record where if you just want to turn your brain off and enjoy some beautifully produced sort of indie rock with with a heavy kind of element of folk, but you also want something where if you do decide I want to pay attention to this, there's a lot to unpack and reveal itself, then I would recommend the new album from Slaughter Beach Dog, Crying, Laughing, Waving, Smiling. Do you like Wilco? then you will like Slaughter Beach Dog because Wilco are a huge influence on, on Slaughter Beach Dog. Basically, in all of the alt-country bands that have come in the wake of Wilco as well. And it's a very laconic and relaxed style of music that is kind of deceptive and that it belies some surprisingly sophisticated and beautiful arrangements, guitar playing in particular, and lyricism. Uh, Slaughter Beach Dog is the product of one Mr. Jake Ewald, who you may know as one of the core members of the now defunct emo legends Modern Baseball. You may not have known about the connection between those two these two bands, though, because Slaughter Beach Dog don't sound anything like Modern Baseball. This is not an emo band. It is a very comfortable, very pretty, and very said it style of of indie folk but my god is this record satisfying in spite of how slight it may initially appear that wilco influence i think is particularly pronounced on songs like the opening track surf in new jersey which reminded me specifically of a ghost is born era wilco but a lot of their later era stuff as well like sky blue sky and whole love comes through and some of these other tracks too it's manages to ride a really delicate line between being really relaxing and really kind of enveloping and great for zoning out to but not feeling slight or uninspired at any turn as well and not kind of emotionally neutral either there's a lot of charge in the writing here Ewell's guitar playing has a real heft and an edge to it that I think will appeal to fans of bands like Wednesday who enjoy the particular character that MJ Lenderman brings to those songs musically I think that Jake Ewald manages that beautifully the sense of space and texture in a song like Bobcat Club is just absolutely wonderful and then you have a song like engine which just sprawls out for nine minutes the last three of which are a languorous but staggering distorted guitar solo that i absolutely love there's vivid storytelling on a song like henry as well which tells a story of a boy who fell in love with the music of charles mingus and asked his and bought a bass and you know and the story doesn't end well but it's a beautifully told story this is one of those albums where I listened to it off the back of a recommendation from IndieCast and I enjoyed it, but then I came back to it and I found more and more to enjoy the more time I spent with it. It's not reinventing the wheel in any way. And honestly, there's a few albums I've got to talk about on this list that are like, this isn't reinventing the wheel, but if you approach it on what it is, it's an amazing example of that. And I think that Slaughter Beach Dog is a fantastic indie rock record that has sadly gone under the radar. I mean, Slaughter Beach Dog in general seem to be a band that are well-beloved by the people that are aware of them, but just have kind of 
been forgotten a little bit because their only real connection is modern baseball and they just don't sound anything like that. So give it a chance. I would say it's a wonderful record. I've spent a lot of time with it in the last few months and I think it has a broad appeal no matter what perspective you're coming from. If you like relaxing, engaging, well-composed indie rock with a great sense of storytelling, then you'll enjoy this album. On the note of things that are absolutely not in any way relaxing, my next pick on here is an album, a debut album from a band called Soul Keeper, their record Holy Design. It's a mathcore album and it blends that mathcore with a very synthetic, very digital element of glitch and cyber metal sort of an avant-garde sort of spin but it doesn't ever stop being deliriously direct it is a 25 minute long experience and each one of these songs hits like a truck there's so many moments on this album that completely caught me off guard it's been an amazing year for standout mathcore releases and this has been one of the most consistently strong but also one of the most inventive uh there are you know bands who exist right now like from joy that are mixing sort of atmospheric drum and bass and uh mathcore to a deliriously fun degree but to me when it gets to the more out there and esoteric releases in the genre you will not find anything better or more consistent than this. This is an incredibly alienating listen. And it's kind of like the logical extreme if you take an album like the Dillinger Escape Plan's Ironworks and then you just aesthetically crank that up to 11. You basically get that experience, but it is condensed into a format that feels a little bit more successful as an album experience, even though it is on the shorter side, but it is so alarmingly intense and colorful that a record anything north of 25 minutes would threaten to just be way too overwhelming to properly process. So not only is this a fantastic record in its own right, it's also something that I really want to see this band develop on because there's so many exciting and interesting directions they could go in and modern math core is like the wild west it's like once you establish yourself you can go pretty much anywhere i want to see these guys eventually get as big as a band like the callous dowboys for instance because they're just as inventive and just as interesting and this is a phenomenal template for their sound so if you need a good dose of math core or if you just need something that i mean it's like an amphetamine you just inject this into you and you go for the entire duration that it's on uh, a fantastic heavy release that does not deserve to be overlooked this year my next pick comes with a context of sadness i would say uh, and that is that last week the legendary punk rock indie rock garage rock punk blues however you want to describe them band screaming females sadly broke up uh, or, or came to an end really uh and that's a real tragedy because screaming females are kind of a punk institution. They're kind of one of those bands that have quietly always been really fucking great and sort of taken for granted how great they are to the point where I think a lot of people sort of skip over them in favor of some of the bands that came a little bit earlier that they're often compared to like Slater Kinney, for instance. And it's a real shame because screaming females were such a great band and earlier this year, they released their their eighth and apparently final album, Desire Pathway, which went 
basically completely under the radar i listened to it when it came out i enjoyed it it was a period where i was saturated with a lot of music so i didn't really get to spend much time consuming it i thought this is another really solid screaming females album but coming back to it earlier finding out after their breakup i'm struck by how great this album is and how truly sad it is that the band are no more if you've never listened to a Screaming Females album, you really can't go wrong with any of their records. Probably their greatest record is 2012's Ugly, but I also really love 2018's more expansive and ambitious All at Once. Desire Pathway, by comparison, is more a little bit meat and potatoes, but it's really a showcase for how fucking great they are at writing songs and doing a fundamental indie punk record. It's really catchy. It's got a lot of power pop inspired hooks. Marissa Paternoster, one of the best vocalists in rock music in the last 20 years, unquestionably such a distinctive voice. And just as soon as you hear her sing, it's like it sears into your soul. She's just one of those singers who has a real compelling power to her voice. And it's never lost on any of their records, but it's particularly felt on this new album, Desire Pathway, which is a breakup album. And it's a pretty bitter one, too. It's an album that confronts the ugliness of coming to terms with how much you subjugated yourself in an unhealthy relationship once it's over. And there's some real soul-searing writing on this thing that is kind of uncomfortable the deeper the closer you inspect it but it's also a fantastically rollicking and really enjoyable 33 minute really tight rock record some fantastic songs brass bell is classic screaming females one of their best songs on any of their recent records for sure i would also say the same about the fantastic climax of the album with let me into your heart it's incredible morning dove is great too ornaments has some particularly barbarous lyrics about what it's like to be needed in an unhealthy toxic way i think let me into your heart really cut me to the bone because of that as well you know again it's one of those records where it's not doing anything staggeringly musically innovative and in fact i think a lot of the picks that we're talking about today aren't albums that are doing that because a lot of the time what does get overlooked, I think, in music each year is when a really great band are doing something really great that they're really good at and really well practiced at, but it's not getting the level of attention that they deserve because it's kind of taken for granted that they're great at it. And it's kind of overlooked because it's not seen as innovative or reinventing themselves or, you know, or pursuing an exciting new direction. It's just seen as, oh, that band's great. They've put out another album. But really, it's a great band being great and so desire pathway i think ranks up there with any of the best screaming females albums i'd probably put it just under all at once and ugly i still need to listen to some of their other records those are the only three that i've properly spent time with but man this album's so good it's really satisfying it's great to hear marissa paternoster just howling across these songs and it really cut me to the bone when i realized what the record was actually about that it had this theme of mistreatment in a relationship and being such a seasoned lyricist as well marissa has a really just piercing approach to the subject matter that i think it's a shame this record basically went ignored uh, in february when it came out and people just sort of like you know 
glanced over it because screaming females were just taken advantage of as an institution and now they're no more and it looks like it'll be the last album they ever put out so the biggest point i want to put away here is go and listen to screaming females listen to this album you know give them some give them some more shine give them some more appreciation because they were overlooked for a really long time i think and all at once especially they put a lot into that album and it didn't really get the response and reception that i think it deserved so you know it's just one of those things where you know, re retrospectively, if their records could be bolstered up more and they could be really more widely acknowledged for what a great band they are, that'd be awesome. I think Desire Pathway is a brilliant installment into that canon. So yeah, check it out. I love all the albums that I'm talking about here today, but this is the point at which these albums cross a threshold to becoming truly masterful, in my opinion, and they simply do not get they're due at least by my own estimation and the first of which is going to be from a bulgarian band which is stylized as tdk uh their actual name is t and then i'm pretty sure it's a bulgarian symbol of some kind but i don't know what it is uh, but it is stylized as tdk and it is their third album from this year called nemesta and to be blunt, this is one of the most unique albums that I've heard this year, and it fucking slaps. This is an album that, honestly, I'm probably, for as great as it is, I'm probably underrating it slightly just because I haven't gotten the time to spend with it that I probably should have. Uh, I have a feeling that the more time and attention I give the, to this, the more I'm going to love it, just because a couple of listens has certainly yielded more and more, like, you know, rewarding things to come back to. But there is just no level at which this is anything other than completely fascinating and absolutely bullsy the fuck over and another reason where i'm kind of disappointed in myself for not having listened to it more is that it's only 35 minutes long and like with the soul keeper album this is an album that i feel like if it was any longer it threatens to burst at the seams because this is such a fantastic combination what we've got here is this very kind of avant-garde mixture of alternative metal and like jazz rock and noise rock and brutal prog to the point where the best like sort of isolated bit of comparison I can come up with is the albums that John Zorn did with Mike Patton. Uh, those albums in particular where, you know, it harnesses Mike Patton's eclectic and kind of out there insane energy as a frontman, but also John Zorn's sort of classically sort of built upon style of brutal prog music where it just goes fucking bananas instrumentally. And this is certainly a little bit more reined in. That said, it's still way left of anything like, you know, what you might consider like mainstream. This is an incredibly difficult album in some respects, but it's never not immediate. And that's what keeps me coming back to it. I think that this album in particular, if you are a Black Midi fan, Jesus Christ, you have to listen to this. This is every bit as good and even a little bit better than, uh, in my opinion, Hellfire, which is sort of their previous uh, record that I hold in the highest of esteem. And this has a lot of the same appeal. The lead singer even sounds 
frighteningly like Jordy Greep a lot of the time and delivers uh, some spoken word on here that is vaguely reminiscent of Black Midi. But there's a sort of darker tone to all of this that keeps it sort of anchored to earth in a different way. And the way that this album will just whip you around with a complete like disregard for your sensibilities as a listener is brave and bold and awesome uh it's got like six main pieces on here and i think all of them are absolutely spectacular uh the first piece on here pet nice gata and the fourth song evane i think are two of the best metal songs of a year that is full of incredible metal songs uh this is just an album that like at every single turn is so unique and so surprising but it never gets away from you there are so many albums that you know they'll try to push the envelope and they end up maybe going a little bit too far and going beyond the pale and it ends up being a little bit more innovative than it is enjoyable whereas i think the balance here is perfectly struck this is a record that i'm kind of dumbfounded is as relatively obscure and untalked about as it is just because it is clearly the project of musicians who are insanely skillful and just cannot be ignored. This is the type of record that should put you on the map forever. Uh, and I am so, so, so eager to explore not only their back catalog, but to see how they could possibly elaborate on this sound from here. Because even if they just do variations on this theme, this is the kind of album that could sustain a band's entire career, frankly. So please give this a shot if you want something that is a little bit more on the unique side and certainly a little bit more challenging. But I promise there is a high likelihood that you will not regret it. My next pick in some ways is the most overlooked album of the year in a temporal sense because it came out on the 1st of January this year. Yeah. So it is the most overlooked because it has the, had the most time to be overlooked. Uh, it's an album that I was onto really quickly because of a shout out from Ian Cohen and also because of certain comparisons that this particular record evoked, specifically a comparison to the band Foxing. Uh, the album's called Higher Lonely Power. It's by a band called Fireworks. It is one of the emo tentpoles of this year, I would say, while also being like any given Foxing album, more specifically the album Nearer My God, which is the most obvious reference point for this record, is emo in the sense that it adopts emo aesthetics or that it, it integrates emo sensibilities in terms of performance with a musical composition that is just indie rock basically um but really anthemic indie rock like larger than life indie rock as the title suggests it's an album about being raised religious and specifically how you view the world and try to function as someone who is no longer religious but was raised in a specifically toxic religious environment so stepping away from that as you grow up and then finding it infecting the way that you interact with the world in basically every single way the way you try to function and maintain relationships in particular but there's a beautiful parallel that this album strikes between you know what it's like to become an adult realize you've kind of fully stepped into that mode and so much of you has changed and you're so isolated and, you know, scared and, and frightened by the fullness of the world that you're now aware of and finding a parallel between that experience and the experience of 
stepping away from being religious, you know, becoming an atheist essentially, and realizing suddenly that you no longer have the foundations or the crutches that you had growing up for the stability that Christianity offered you in terms of, you know, understanding the world. And it's so it's a record that draws parallels between those two processes and then, of course, invites you to imagine what it's like or relate to it if you have had that experience of being a person who's had to go through both of those things. That alienating isolation of losing all of the comforts of your childhood and of your adolescence and your friends and your connections and also losing the crutch of religion that held you in a kind of you know unhealthy, toxic constraint. Uh, there's a lyric on the song Mega Church, hurts to know we're on our own, sad to know we're in control, that I think sums up this dynamic beautifully. And that aside, it's just a really fantastic collection of, you know, slightly, this is the thing, I think one of the things that have, has put people off about this record is how kind of obviously indebted to bands like U2 and Imagine Dragons it is in terms of the scale of it you know this huge surging anthemic rock music with this kind of radio friendly booming quality to it uh, a, lot of, a lot of people are put off by that a lot of emo purists are put off by the fact that this band are even called emo in the first place but there's just so much of this record that's rewarding if that sense of, of colossal space and this kind of music really appeals to you. And if you like a band like Foxing, for instance, there are songs like Jerking Off the Sky, which has this really driving, distorted groove that I absolutely love. There's experimentation in songs like Machines Kept You Alive, which completely bursts apart in its final half to this heavily compressed and clipped drum and bass outro. And then there's warm, string-flecked, sun-bleached ballads like the closing track, How Did It Used To Be So Easy, that ends the record in a surprisingly comforting and warm place. I think this record has gotten a lot of unfair hate, even though I can understand why its aesthetics won't appeal to everyone. But I would just say, give it a shot, give it a chance. I I always love when bands try to when bands do this, when but when emo bands kind of try to reach beyond the constraints of the sort of twinkling, mopey, you know, minimalist style and really kind of embrace this hugeness that this record does. And it's really awe-inspiring in that way. So I would say check it out, Higher Lonely Power by Fireworks. Next artist on my list is somebody who we've been beating the drum for since this podcast began, and I will stubbornly keep beating this drum until he gets out of the relative obscurity that he is in, that being Rustin Kelly, his new album, The Weakness. This is something that we've already talked about in a full-blown review. If you want more in-depth thoughts, go check out that review it's a good episode it is so perfectly engineered to be loved and received by a wider audience that it just makes me want to slam my head into a wall that it's not and of course i'm going to feel that way about an artist i connect with but it's because i connect with him that i think that a lot of other people would too and frankly the weakness is an album that i feel like if you're gonna get on board with rustin kelly this is the one to do it with Dying Star is going to be my favorite 
album of his no matter what, just because that has secured a place in my heart that cannot be replaced or replicated by anything. All of the three studio records that he has released have been fantastic, but the weakness in particular shows a sharp refinement of some of his more indie rock and emo sensibilities and really brings that to the forefront of his sound. And in combination with producer Nate Mercero, create a record that's uh, like it sounds immediate and it sounds polished in a way his music hasn't quite sounded yet, but it also makes it more accessible and it also just enhances the material. This is a very dark but still incredibly hopeful album that's fucking anthemic. Rustin Kelly can write hooks in his fucking sleep that absolutely trounce anything on pop radio. But here it is just one after the other after the other of things that you want to put on in your car at full max volume, which I have done with the title track and opener to this. My favorite song on here, I think, at least as of right now, it's just got a lot of competition, frankly, so I can't safely make that call. But my God, what an absolute fucking barn burner. Rustin is an incredibly emotional writer and he brings that to the forefront here is this is an album about healing in the wake of terrible heartbreak. Um, and there are songs on here that channel his subtler side, stuff like Mending Song, which is like way more sedate and way more atmospheric than his music has ever been only to its benefit, in my opinion. There are songs on here that showcase his incredible multifaceted writing that's both heartbreakingly tragic and earnestly emotional. Songs like Michael Keaton, which has one of my favorite song hooks of the year, which is incredibly fucking funny, but also really, really fucking dark. There's Breakdown, which channels 2000s pop with its string arrangements and how big and loud and bombastic it is. There's just not a moment on here where Rustin isn't as compelling or as sharp as he's ever been as an artist. And I am thrilled to see that he is maintaining that level of quality. And it's a level of quality that deserves a much fucking bigger audience. So go listen to Rustin Kelly, goddammit. I will not stop until people do. Absolutely. Second it. I love that album. We did it great. Check out our review if you enjoyed that record and you didn't know it. We reviewed it. It's a great. We, I'm really proud of, of what we said about that one. My next pick is the second of the two EPs that I forecasted I'd be including on my list. And one I really specifically want. I want you to listen. I want to get your take on this, Jake, because I think you'll enjoy this. And Morgan as well. I, I mentioned it because I know you like to consume EPs and it's a really good format for getting a sense of an artist in a really concise way. And this is, in fact, uh, the second EP from an artist who's only who hasn't released an album yet. Um, the artist is James Ivy, and the EP is called Everything Perfect. Here's how I'll sell this. This is like if Porter Robinson tried to make a 1975 album. <laughs> That's sweet kind, i'm sold that's kind of what it is it's um uh, porter robertson can be kind of misleading in that comparison because this isn't really electronic at all it's sort of a shoegazy psychedelic pop record that has a lot of sort of you know 2000s sort of boy band influence in the same way that 1975 does but also infused with these radiant rich guitars and this kind of laconic slacker vocal performance another reference point would be the george clanton album from this year as well i think fits the same kind of vibe except this is a little bit less in your face and a little bit more kind of washes over you in, in an extremely pleasant way just you get these really sharp guitar lines these blissful swelling soundscapes and this just real sense of, of character and fun to it 
again, James as a performer is pretty kind of far back in the mix, and it's not like he's someone who leaps out at you with all this charisma. But that's because the music is just about this feeling of, of, of basking in sunlight basically everything perfect is a great name for the ep because it kind of is the sort of thing that when you're listening to it it makes you feel that way it just makes you feel like oh shit man this is this is it this is the feeling this is the vibe and i you know i don't like to use such vague language but it really is befitting of what this is I've spent a lot of time throwing this EP on throughout the year. A shout out to Connor and Ryan of Not Real Music as well, both of whom are the reason I'm aware of this because they both like rode hard for this EP. I think you know, it's uh, one of Ryan's most highest rated releases of the year, and he's pretty strict on what he gives high ratings to. So that already set a level of expectation, but my God, this is just immaculate sort of shoegazy psychedelic pop music with this just great immediacy to it that i absolutely love a great format for it as well because there's not a lot admittedly not a lot of sort of diversity or dynamism in what james can do so it fits that it's just in a shorter package i'm curious to see what he'll do if he does get around to delivering a full-length album but as far as it goes this is as good as it gets in terms of eps this year Songs like L Trip, Stereo Play, the title track, and especially James Saves the Best for Last with the final track on the album, on the EP, Last Place You'd Ever Look. If you like radiant guitar lines, if you like warm bathing soundscapes, if you like music that makes you feel like you're laying under the sun, this is the EP for you this year. Check it out. And once again, pivoting into the exact opposite tonally yes. is that my penultimate pick here is not even just one album but three, three released in the same year by the same artist that are similar levels of quality. Two of them are two of my absolute favorite metal releases of the year. And these are all three of the records by the sort of new band's project that's one guy uh, in the black metal and technical thrash metal and mathcore scene. And that is the three band, the three albums by Hoplites. Uh, which is a Greek word I'm probably pronouncing incorrectly. And all three of these albums are written in Greek characters, so I'm not even going to try. Just look it up, uh, and that's where you'll find it. Uh, they all have really striking sort of classical album covers, uh, painting-wise. Um, but these three albums are staggering achievements uh sort of an overriding theme this year is that i've gotten really into this sort of new scene that combines a lot of fringe extreme black metal with mathcore in the vein of stuff like the serpent column theophonos's new album is also one of my favorite metal albums of the year but the second record in this trilogy is actually in my opinion even better than something like nightmare visions this album in particular i think is the harshest most brutal heaviest just absolutely apocalyptic sounding uh, metal album of the decade so far. It is absolutely unrelenting. It is 38 minutes of pure sonic torture. Every single song on here is constructed in a way that feels wrong. It's like listening to something that feels sour and mutated and disgusting. And I fucking love it. The dedication this guy goes to, to making music that is as incendiary as humanly possible, but also has a very operatic and even melodramatic bent to it so that all of this noise, all of this cacophony actually manages to weave together and 
like mean something and be emotionally tangible is absolutely staggering the third album in this trilogy has gone a little bit sort of under the radar just because i think the first two sort of occupied most of the space in people's mind but it's an absolutely exceptional record as well and each of them have different facets like that third record uh that was released in october actually has more of a uh, a thrashier bent whereas i would say that the second record is a little bit more like purely black metal mathcore kind of stuff and the first one on the other hand is almost like blending god almost like gore gut style dissonant like death metal with all of this other stuff it's stuff that like isolated i really really fuck with uh individually but when you combine it together and when you do it as skillfully as this guy has done it's absolutely mesmerizing this is of something that has incredibly limited appeal but due to the fact that it is catching on just a little bit if you are interested in heavy music or extreme kind of avant-garde black metal, you will not find anything more unrelenting and more ruthlessly dedicated than these three albums. They are remarkable. I haven't listened to anything so far this decade that has made me feel smaller than the second entry in this trilogy, but all of them are worthwhile. Bare minimum great albums, and at the apex of it, that second record, I think is a, just a full-blown, unabashed fucking masterpiece. Uh, but listeners, beware, because you will not walk away from this unscathed. I'm really, I'll just interject to say I'm really fascinated by this project. Uh, I, I think if it is Greek, which it looks like it is, it would probably be pronounced Hoplites. Uh, but what's interesting about it is that the artist is a is a Chinese guy who's younger than mm -hmm. us. And it's all, yep. like, I love this. There's this Chinese guy in his early 20s making these massive dissonant black metal records themed around, appa themed apparently around Greek mythology, at least from what I can tell. Mm -hmm. and you know, building the storm of just like continually releasing album after album after album. Uh, really, really interesting. I think I've dipped my toes into the second record, but I need to listen to it properly. It remind, the thing that stood out to me the most about it was how much it reminded me of Deathspell Omega, which I think fans yep. of that particular yep. band will find a lot to enjoy with Hoplites. But I really want to, before the year is over, I want to sit down with these three albums because they, they just seem really, really exciting to me. Uh, and also I just want to say, that third album, the the album cover, of that third album is one of the hardest covers of the whole year. Oh, rad, rad Just as fuck. I love everything it. about it. The fucking like Renaissance sort of fr uh, frill and corset, the exposed breaths, the evil makeup, the fucking high heel on the swan, and just kind of holding the scissors up like that. Ah, oh, everything about that cover, I and fucking. And that's what the album sounds like. That's that. That's a great sort of uh, litmus test to how you'll feel about it. Is that like that's the feeling that this music engenders? Oh, I love that. It's just like I don't know anything about Hoplites, about who they are, really beyond what's available online. Just that they're twenty three years old in Chinese, but that is like so gender. <laughs> Like that mm -hmm. is so fucking gender. So I'm looking forward to some punishing and very projected gender euphoria from this brutal <laughs> experience. For my second to last pick, we've kind of arranged these in a more or less ascending ranking so that our personal enthusiasm is increasing as we go. Mine's a little bit looser. I've kind of adjusted that to kind of make it a bit more balanced in its sequencing. But my last two picks are basically tied for first, if we want to think of it that way. Basically, what I'm saying is... is 
I really think that these last two albums deserve as big of an audience as possible, but especially this album, the second to last one, because I think it's going to go a little bit more under the radar. Uh, it's an album from a project called Empty Country, which is the solo project of one Joe D'Agostino, who, if you're an indie rock fan, you may know as the frontman of the band Symbols Eat Guitars, the sadly now no more band, Symbols Eat Guitars, one of the great indie rock bands of the 2010s. Um, and a band that sadly languished and got less and less critical attention as they were getting better and better at making music, which is one of the great tragedies that oftentimes a band will receive a lot of a certain amount of buzz for in their early days, but that buzz will dissipate as people move on, even though the band are getting better and better and better. And that was certainly true with Symbols Eat Guitars, their 2014 album Lose is one of my favorite indie rock albums of the decade. And then 2016's Pretty Years was like a, a massively exciting pivot into the scronky Springsteen influenced sort of street pop that I absolutely loved. And then the band dissolved and Joe formed Empty Country. And there's a lot of backstory behind the two albums that Joe's released as Empty Country. They're both largely funded through Patreon. I think I think specifically this new album was largely funded through Patreon as well. Joe is very much working fully independently. He's working a full-time job. He's just a guy who is trying to fulfill his passion for music after his moderately successful band just completely were unable to financially sustain themselves. So there's an element of willing uh, Joe to be able to continue to make music because of how talented he is. Um, but that first entry, Empty Country album also came out like a week after the pandemic began. So it got completely swallowed up by that. Didn't get the attention that it deserved, even though it has one of the greatest songs of the last 10 years on it, the opening track, Marion. A song which is referenced in multiple songs on this new record because this isn't just the second Empty Country record, it very much is a kind of sequel album, hence the title. Joe is sort of building a world where of, of regular characters that are recurring through these songs. There are multiple songs on this record that tell the stories of characters that are related to a character or, or characters on that first album. But I would stress, you don't need to have heard the first album to enjoy this. And in many ways, I think, even though there's nothing on this album that quite hits the celestial highs of Marion. this is overall a better album than the first em empty country album and honestly probably one of the absolute best indie rock albums of the year you can feel it straining against its limitations in the sense that you know it's maybe not as as well produced as i'd like it to be but that's purely a product of financial limitations because the songs themselves are peerless this is and one of the things that will strike you when you listen to it as well is how massive these songs sound, how they are straining against the limitations of budget to be huge, as huge as possible, much more so than the first MD Country album, I think, which had a lot of sparseness in between its huger moments. This is much more consistently massive, and it benefits from that. A lot of talk around this has compared it to an album like Lose. Um, and I certainly, if you enjoy that record, you'll find a lot of satisfying similarities here. But it's absolutely still in its own lane. It's Some of the songwriting on this album is utterly brilliant and devastating. Joe is a fantastic storyteller. He weaves these tapestries of broken Midwestern America uh, that, that just are illuminating 
portraits of, through the lens of specific character studies that will just absolutely wring the emotions out of you. Joe's voice is not for everyone. I've seen a lot of people complaining they don't like the way that his voice sounds. I love Joe's voice. I think it's one of his greatest assets, but just go in, I guess, with that caveat that not everyone enjoys his particularly kind of strained style of singing. He weaves between the sort of strained style and these really kind of beautiful, dreamy vocals that he balances between. Really um, unique performer. Uh, Joe's heavily influenced by the late David Berman as well, who was a kind of a mentor to Joe and who kind of helped Joe write some of the songs. Well, not helped Joe write, but kind of gave Joe advice while he was writing the first album. And so there's a song on here, David, which is a specific ode to him that captures everything about David as a songwriter that inspired Joe, but also the the awkwardness and difficulty of Joe's process and how the story of David is both inspiring and heartbreaking to Joe as he kind of tries to navigate what it's like being an artist. Songs like Dustine are just musically overwhelming. There are these huge and brutal wars of distorted guitar that I absolutely love. But really the thing about this album is that it finds its best footing in the second half. Uh, there's great songs in the first half. The opening track Pearl is sensational. But the final leg of this album from the song Bootsy onwards is really something else. Bootsy is one of the songs of the year, in my opinion. Uh, it's an incredible story song of a person who, you know, kind of a vagabond who runs away from home and travels on a bus to New York. And then you kind of come to learn that it's set within the 80s. And this person kind of falls in with the queer New York community of the 80s. And it's the backdrop is the AIDS crisis. And it's this wonderful story song of self-discovery and community that the way it reveals that information about what it's about in the context just makes it so hard hitting. Joe's character writing is so deeply felt as well. You can tell that he spent months just slaving over the world that these characters exist within and the feelings that they you know, experience as they're navigating America. There is the song FLA, which is a grand and epic kind of state history of Florida. And that has this incredible harmonica part that comes in. And I've never heard a harmonica sound this violence before it sounds like it is shredding open the sky a scream of frustration at the you know horror of florida you know the, the beauty and the horror of the forgotten american landscapes basically the people that are forgotten and then it ends with an incredible 12 minute song called cool s which yes is a reference to the cool s but is also from the perspective of a teenager who has been given a life sentence for murder and is basically very coldly dictating what they did, their remorselessness, and a, a, a really affronting and dark song that is kind of seems to be like Joe challenging himself to find humanity and to find a compelling emotional through line from the perspective of a character who's essentially done something horrific and shows no remorse for it. It's a real challenging exercise as a songwriter and it ends the record in a really bracing place. I don't think it's flawless. There are aspects of the record that I would have liked to have seen tidied up a little bit, but my God, the ambition here, the refinement of Joe's skill as a storyteller and as a crafter of characters is so deeply felt. And I think the massive scale of these tracks musically will appeal to people as well. So check this out. My God, this record is fantastic. Empty Country 2.
Well, my number one pick is incredibly expected if you've been tuning into our uh, segments talking about new music is the debut album from an artist I've been following for a while named Lauren Alder and her album, The Infinite Spine. I'm not really going to try and describe a lot of what this music is or sounds like because I would just kind of diminish it if I attempted to put a label on it. And when it comes to talking about new up-and-coming queer artists, I feel like that's maybe one of the worst things you can do is try to pigeonhole them with a label when they're deliberately trying to eschew that and become something different. And Lauren Otter is many things, but the primary thing she is is different. This is an art pop album. It does have some very ornate, very Baroque sort of instrumentation all across it, but that doesn't really get to what this album is like listening to it. And I don't really know how to describe it in the best of terms just because it's so unlike anything else I've ever heard ever really. And the fact that it has a minuscule following is something that I just had to do my absolute best to correct. Several of the best pop songs of the year appear on this record, particularly things like Hawthorne 81 or City in a Bottle, the opener 33 and Golden. So many songs on here alone moved me to the brink of tears and then past that. Lauren's musings on femininity, womanhood, and the context of the modern world are fascinating to delve into. As a writer, she sort of oscillates between being frighteningly esoteric and so direct, it is incredibly uncomfortable. Like, But as a lyricist, she has more in common, you know, with Nick Cave than she does Fiona Apple in terms of like what this voice actually channels. And there's just so much opaque fuzziness on this album that makes it kind of difficult to you know nail down your feelings on it but the more and more I listened to this the more and more I just kind of fell in love with it it's a tight release it's a tight listen but it's just filled to the brim with songs that feel like worlds there are so many things on here that kind of issue traditional structure and just pursue something a little bit more linear and single-minded and that might be where some people get off with it but to me it's just a journey through several different perspectives that are all kind of shown through Lauren as she attempts to voice these different perspectives and do her best to kind of fill out everything from a from a lyrical standpoint while instrumentally being no less than absolutely stunning the whole way through a lot of the sentiments on here are very achingly universal but they're still very distinctly quite queer and the greatest thing about it is that it's a all synthesized in a way that works but it also is just lauren's voice her deep registered soulful baritone it's absolutely soul-wrenching like i even if this was an album that had lackluster production i would probably be singing its praises from the rooftops just because of how great a central performer lauren is i highly recommend this album i highly recommend her ep5 songs for the dysphoric uh particularly our queer listeners if you want to find something that will resonate with some of your experiences around gender identity and femininity i 
highly recommend giving this a listen. It does not have enough attention. And frankly, I think it is a stone cold masterpiece. Uh, and Lauren in general is just an artist that I want to see grow and flourish. And she can't do that without support of people following her on stuff like Bandcamp, going and liking YouTube videos and music and stuff, all that. So not only seek out the infinite spine, but seek out everything Lauren has done because I want to see her become one of the biggest trans sort of indie music artists that we have because God knows she deserves it on the merit of her hard work alone. My final pick today is again an album we've actually reviewed in one of our quick review episodes but honestly it's grown on me even beyond when we reviewed it and we were pretty positive about it. I think it has a, a stone cold classic one of the best songs of the year on it but more than that i think this is an album that does a successful job of kind of reinventing a band that had long been pigeonholed in a particular space and also not really all that thought about for a very long time bringing them back from obscurity and revitalizing and reimagining what they can be in such lush exciting and rewarding ways and then basically getting you know, maybe a little twinkle of crit critical response, but really not all that much. And that's the new album from The Clientele, I Am Not There Anymore. This is, an, this is a beautiful record. It blends these ornate strings with uh, shimmering guitars, bit-crushed drums, and that's just the opening track. You also have these psychedelic 90s-sounding drum patterns that come through in other points as well. Some beautifully flamenco-inspired guitar playing on songs like Blue Over Blue. Alistair McLean's voice has, has this sense of John Lennon-esque wonder that's so inviting. I mentioned George Clanton earlier in relation to the James Ivy EP. I think that the psychedelic aspects of the production here, I think if you enjoyed that album, you'll enjoy this too. Largely, this is a record about reminiscing on childhood. It has this sense of distance from childhood that I think makes it stand out from a lot of the other typically nostalgic looking back albums that we often talk about, where it's this wistful, aged sense of childhood feeling as though it's refracted through this prism of all of the years since that point that make it feel so hazy and, and distant and not necessarily something that you're just mindlessly nostalgic for, but something that feels like a mystery that you're now starting to unlock in your later years. Um, there's a sense of, of, of bitterness that comes through and a complicated emotional nuance in the way that the album reckons with aging and evolving and growing. And that feels on a meta level as well to reflect how the clientele themselves have changed over the years to the point where this is such a distinct record from the early albums like Strange Geometry that they're known for. Although there are moments later in the album where I think you get a little bit more of that classic clientele coming through, like in songs like Hey Siobhan, for instance. To me, this is one of the most creatively inspiring things I've experienced this year. I don't make music. I'm not an artist in that sense. But this album, every time I put it on, makes me feel as though I want to go and create. It makes me feel as though I want to not just create as well, but pick up something I don't, I've ne like an instrument, learn an instrument I've never learned before, learn a language I've never learned before, do something I've never considered myself to possibly be good at doing. 
that's one of the things that has kept me coming back to this album and has made it a fixture of my weekly process, essentially, when I'm trying to get myself in a headspace where I feel inspired. And this album just does that. It manages to balance that sense of comfortable warmth of something you can just put on to let your worries mellow away and, and, and feel in, you know, relaxed and comfortable and, and nostalgic, but also something that has such a sense of character and dynamism to it, has such a sense of flow and surprise to it that it feels as though the band are truly limitless in what they can do. I think this is perfectly encapsulated by the opening track Fables of the Silver Link, which is one of the best songs of the year. It has yep. so, there's so much genre fusion and so much just like, I didn't, I would never have expected to hear this up against that within this eight and a half minute song that it has not stopped making me feel like the limitless possibilities of creation basically. And so in that sense, it's one of the most important albums for me of this year and the effect that it's had and the way that it's helped me to like understand a band I already loved in a completely new way and see them as possible and see them as able to do things I never would have imagined they would be able to do or have an interest in doing as well. It manages to be one of the best sort of warm, fuzzy, alternative pop records of the year and also one of the best lush, baroque, you know, orchestrated albums of the year and one of the best sort of psychedelic, hazy, ambient albums of the year. It's just got so much possibility loaded within it and I think that if it had more ears on it, had more attention, I think more people would see that as well. And more people would appreciate how the clientele are one of the greatest bands that we have. And this may well be one of their finest works ever, right up there with their best stuff, I think. That's how much it's come to mean to me this year. It's really stuck with me and I'm really grateful for it. All right. That brings us to the end of our collection of some of the most overlooked albums of this year, in our opinion. If you've heard any of these records, let us know what you thought in the comments below. But more than that, let us know what you think are the most over overlooked albums of the year, in your opinion. What are the things that you've been listening to this year that you wish had more ears on them, that you wish more people were talking about, that you think we should listen to as well? Because we're pretty open at this point. We want to get all our ducks in a row as a the final throes of the list season descend upon us as well. So let us know what's been overlooked this year in the comments below, and let's continue the conversation. If you want to go above and beyond and support us directly for just $1 a month, you can hit the join button, become a member of the Jams and Tea family, get your name and the title crawl of every video on this channel. Plus, if you do recommend us something to listen to, we will make sure to talk about it in one of our now episodes. Stick around because it's lists all the way down for the rest of the year. At this point, we're going to be talking about the worst albums of the year. We're obviously going to be talking about the best albums and songs of the year. And we're going to be talking about other things as well that have stood out to us this year that don't fit neatly within those boxes too. So stick around and we hope to see you there. Until next time though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, Pokemon, gotta catch them all.